Let's pray together. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Kinsman Redeemer. Amen. Why did Jesus die? Seems like a simple question, and yet it is as important as any question we can ask. Obviously, Jesus' death is central to the Gospel. We know that because it's so central to the Gospels themselves. All four Gospels spend an inordinate amount of time on the final hours of Jesus' life and His death on the cross. But why? Why does this happen? Why did He die? Uh, It is interesting that there are a number of historians outside of the Scriptures who make reference to Jesus' death, like Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, like Tacitus, the Roman historian. But it's interesting, these historians outside of the Scriptures who make reference to His death do not say anything about its meaning. They cannot explain why He died. So we have to ask this question, why did Jesus die? Or we could put the same question another way. Why does the Gospel take the shape of a man hanging on a cross. Why does the Gospel take this shape of a man on a cross? A man tried and crucified. Did Jesus have to die the way that He did on a tree? Did He have to be tried in a Jewish court and then in a Roman court? Would the Gospel still be the Gospel if He had died in some other way? What if He had died of disease or accident? Tom Wright, who is probably the leading New Testament scholar in the world these days, uh, tells a story about teaching a children's Sunday school class. And he asked the kids this question, why did Jesus die? And some of the kids said, because He made the leaders angry. Other kids said, to take away our sin. In other words, some of the kids in the class gave a historical answer, historical reasons why Jesus died. Other kids in the class gave what you could call a theological answer, a kind of theological rationale for Jesus' death. And of course, Wright points out that both groups of kids were correct. In fact, both of these answers need each other. There are historical reasons and there are theological reasons for Christ's death. And the historical reasons and the theological reasons go together and indeed explain one another. The Gospels give us a historical account of the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. That much is clear. But a theological account of Christ's death is embedded in that historical narrative. In other words, the history carries the theology. And the theology explains the history. The history and the theology, or we could say fact and meaning, go together. I think even the form of the cross can remind us of this. Think about what a cross looks like. Think about the shape of a cross. It has a horizontal axis and a vertical axis. A horizontal axis reminding us of human action, the human actors in the story, and a vertical axis reminding us of the divine action, the divine actors in the story. You have the historical plane, 
the historical dimension, and you have the theological dimension. And of course, these are inseparable. The cross is explained only in terms of its history and its theology. See, in order to do justice to the cross, certainly we have to do justice to the divine actors on the stage when Jesus is tried and crucified. We have to do justice to the role that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit play. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all at work. But we also have to see how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are at work through the human actors. We can't ignore them or pretend that they're not there. But of course, the flip side of that is it's not enough to focus on the human actors because what are the human actors doing after all? They are fulfilling a divine plan. They are acting out a divine script. And so to really understand the cross, we've got to do justice to all the actors who are on the stage when Jesus is tried and crucified. To really understand the cross, we have to look at the trial scenes that lead to the cross. We've read them this morning. It is actually necessary historically and necessary theologically for Jesus to be taken to court. For Jesus to be taken to a Jewish court and a Gentile court. So, again, ask, why the trial? Why the cross? What is the theological reason for all this history? What's the meaning of all of this history? Why did Jesus have to have His day in court? Why did Jesus have to hang on a tree? Let's really focus on the trial scenes here this morning. Why did Jesus have to have His day in court? Trials reveal secrets, don't they? That's one reason why we are so interested in trials. That's why we have TV shows that are devoted to covering trials. I remember you know, years ago, the O.J. Simpson trial and how everybody would hang on what's happening. Who knows what secrets might be revealed in court as this case is dealt with? What's going to happen when all the evidence is on the table? Will the charges stick or will the defendant be vindicated? Is there some secret piece of evidence we didn't know that's going to come out in the course of this trial? In Mark chapter 14, when Jesus is questioned by the high priest, he finally reveals his true identity. This is the first time he publicly reveals who he is. He is asked by the high priest, and then he affirms, yes, he says, I am the Christ, the Son of God. He is the one who will fulfill Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, Old Testament prophecies he alludes to in his answer to the high priest. He's kept his identity secret up to this point. There's certainly been a lot of clues, but he has kept his identity secret up to this point. Now the secret is out. When Jesus goes to trial, the secret is revealed. The same thing happens before Pilate. Here the question is a little bit different. It's not, are you the Christ? It is, are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? But here the answer finally comes out as Jesus publicly affirms it. And again, it's the first time he does so. It's the first time he publicly affirms that he is the king of the Jews. And so here on trial before Pilate, the secret is out. When Jesus is on trial, His secrets are revealed. But that's not all. The trial also reveals the secrets in the hearts of men. 
when Jesus is being tried, as Jesus is on trial, Peter is also being trial, tried in a way. Uh, actually, as in fact, the way Mark gives his account, Peter is being tried at the exact same moment Jesus is being tried. And what happens when Peter is put on trial? Peter's secrets are exposed. Peter fails. Peter is exposed as a fraud, not as a faithful disciple of Jesus, but as a fraudulent disciple, one who can't keep his own word, one who had boasted about how he would stay faithful no matter what, but then who crumbles before a servant girl. In fact, the trial really reveals that all the disciples are weak. They're, they all fail to stand with Jesus. They ought to be standing there with Jesus as he is on trial, but they've all fled away. And so the trial exposes them all as failures. The secrets of their hearts are exposed. But of course, the trial also reveals what is in the hearts of the Jewish leaders and the Roman governors. We find the secret envy of the priests and Pharisees exposed. Indeed, Pilate himself recognizes this. He knows they've only brought charges against Jesus because they are envious of him. Envious of his power. Envious of his popularity. Indeed, as you read the Gospels, this is what you find. As Jesus increases in popularity with the crowds, the hatred that the Jewish leadership has for him increases right along with it. They're envious of Jesus. And that envy now is exposed in the court. Indeed, what we find is they would rather kill God than have a God like Jesus. See, their secret, the secret of the Jewish leadership, is exposed here. Who they really are comes out in court. They actually hate the God they claim to love and serve. In the name of God, they will kill God's Son. Their secret is out. Their hypocrisy is revealed. They could keep it a secret for a while, but now it's out. But most of all, the trial will reveal God's secrets. The secret way God has determined to bring about our salvation. See, the divine hand has written this whole script. God has His secrets. And indeed, God's secrets turn all conventional wisdom on its head. And this all comes out at the trial. At the trial, we begin to find God's secrets uncovered. How God will win the victory through suffering. How He will bring in His kingdom through the cross in the unlikeliest of ways. See, God's deepest secrets hidden from the foundation of the world are now being unlocked. The key has been put in the keyhole and it's turning. And now God's about to show us everything. And so when Jesus is tried and killed, indeed, finally, when that veil in the temple rips as Jesus cries out His last, at that moment, all of God's cards are laid on the table. The clues are finally all there and come together. The pieces of the puzzle now all finally fit. The riddle of it all is solved. God's secret is made plain. But we can see even more clearly what's going on if we look at the actual details of this. What actually happens specifically when Jesus is on trial? The trial of Jesus before men is absolutely crucial to the Gospel. You can't just gloss over this and run straight to the cross because you won't fully understand what's happening at the cross if you don't really look carefully at the trial of Jesus. 
in this historical event, the theology of the cross comes out. For here, when Jesus is on trial, the great exchange takes place. Jesus is the judge, but He puts Himself in the place of the judge. Jesus has to be judged in order to justify us. He has to be condemned by men in order to acquit men. He has to be reckoned a sinner if sinners are to be reckoned righteous. He has to be declared guilty so He can bear our guilt in our place. All of this comes out at His trial. There are really two key statements about the trial as it takes place before Pilate. Take these two key statements of what happens when Jesus is standing trial before Pilate. In verse 14, Pilate publicly declares Jesus innocent. He says, what evil has this man done? And then in verse 15, he publicly condemns Jesus anyway, delivering him over to be crucified. You see that? In other words, in Pilate's court, Jesus is innocent and guilty at the same time. Clearly innocent of any sin of his own, and yet condemned to die a sinner's death. John Calvin says that in order for Christ to save us, he could not die just any kind of death. Calvin says a form of death had to be chosen in which he clearly took the guilt and condemnation of others onto himself while maintaining his own innocence. And that is exactly what happens here when he is arraigned before Pilate's judgment seat as a criminal. And he's accused. They make all kinds of accusations against him. In verse 3 we find. And then he is declared innocent. Pilate vindicates him against all charges. And then he is condemned anyway. You see that? When he is both vindicated and condemned by Pilate, we know now he is the sinless one standing in the place of sinners. Isaiah 53 prophesied this. Isaiah 53, one of Isaiah's suffering servant songs. Speaking of one who will come, who will be God's righteous servant. But this righteous servant, Isaiah says, will be numbered with the transgressors. He will be numbered with the transgressors so he may die in the place of transgressors. Isaiah 53 also says the Lord's servant will be assigned a grave with the wicked though there was no deceit in his mouth. Though he is honest and upright, and keeps his integrity, he will be assigned a grave with the wicked. He will die a wicked man's death. Calvin actually connects the trial not with, well, he does with Isaiah 53 in some places, but uh, he also connects it with, with Psalm 69.4. Psalm 69.4 where the psalmist says, they hated me without cause. They hated me without cause. They condemned me without cause. That's actually, Psalm 69 is actually a prayer of Jesus Himself. Indeed, in that same verse, the psalmist says, I will repay what I did not steal. The psalmist says, I am innocent. I have not stolen. But he says, I will pay the sinner's debts. The psalmist is not a thief, but he will make restitution on behalf of the thief. In essence, that's what Jesus is doing here on trial. He's not the thief, but He will make our restitution. In the trial, we see that Jesus is innocent and guilty at the same time so that we may be innocent and guilty at the same time. 
He is not a sinner, but He dies a sinner's death. We are sinners, but we receive a righteous man's acquittal. That's the Gospel. When we're united to Jesus by faith, all of these things are true for us. Jesus is innocent in Himself, yet He is rendered guilty so that He might die for the guilty. He is simultaneously just and a sinner. Just in Himself, but a sinner in union with those He dies for. As the Apostle Paul says, God made Him who knew no sin to be a sin offering for us. Or as Peter says, at the cross, it is the righteous for the unrighteous. So Pilate's words and actions make the key point. The historical event matters. Jesus is the just one unjustly condemned. He is accused in order to defeat the accuser. He will be wrongly accused to deliver those who are rightly accused from all accusation. This is the wonderful exchange. He unites Himself to us precisely so He can stand trial in our place. He owns our guilt. He takes our guilty verdict upon Himself in order to suffer the punishment our sins deserve. He's accused of blasphemy to save blasphemers. He's accused of rebellion to save rebels. He's accused of sin to save sinners. The trial shows us the mechanism, if I can put it that way, the mechanism that makes the Gospel work. Christ is declared innocent and yet condemned so those who deserve condemnation can be declared innocent. The trial makes this plain. The trial makes it clear. Jesus is dying an accursed death, but not for His own sin, rather for ours. Now we're going to see this even more clearly next week when we look at the case of Barabbas. But you can see it in these other details in the trial account. And you see how the history and the theology of the cross go together. The historical event is the vehicle that carries this theological freight. The historical event of the trial gives us really a theology of substitution so we can understand how the cross will bring about our justification. Pilate has a role to play. He's a judge. And he plays his role to a T. At one and the same time, declaring Christ innocent and yet condemning Him anyway. Pilate says, this man has done no evil and then delivers him over to an evil man's death. See, at the trial, it's really Jesus versus everyone. It's Jesus versus the whole world. In the trial, the whole world aligns itself against Jesus. Really, I should say in the trials, because there are two of them. A Jewish trial and a Gentile trial. And in both of them, Jesus stands alone. It is everyone against one. It is all against the one. The many against the one. Jesus becomes everybody's scapegoat. And so all of humanity is implicated in His death precisely so He can save all of humanity. Representatives of all nations, representatives of Jews and representatives of Gentiles condemn Him so that in His death He can represent all nations. He can bear the judgment that all nations ought to receive. 
You have a Jewish court and a Gentile court representing the whole world coming together, united against Jesus. You see this in Mark 14 and Mark 15. It's so plain. The whole world gangs up against a single victim. And Jesus becomes the ultimate scapegoat. He becomes everyone's enemy. Everyone's object of hatred. Why? Precisely so He can be the one who will bear every man's sin and punishment. See, this story is it has this all-against-one structure to it. You see Jesus standing alone against the Jews and standing alone against the Gentiles. This all-against-one structure means that Jesus is the one who will bear the wrath of all to save all. He will be the innocent victim who takes the blame, blame that ought to fall on the whole world. Jew and Gentile come together and unite against Him. They unite in their condemnation. He dies under the united condemnation of Jew and Gentile precisely so He can justify and unite Jew and Gentile in one redeemed community. Jew and Gentile have come together in condemning Him precisely so they can be brought together in His redemption as one new humanity. The whole world condemns Jesus so Jesus can bear judgment the world deserves and so create a new world. A new world in which Jew and Gentile are united not in their common hatred of God and God's Messiah, but in their common love and trust towards Him. All this is happening in His trial. Now there are other historical details here that I think point to this same deep theology of substitution and sacrifice at work in these historical events. I'll just give you a few of them here. We'll look at some more next week. 15.1, the, the first verse in chapter 15 is interesting. It says they bound Jesus. They bound Jesus to bring Him to Pilate. That binding of Jesus actually recalls the language of Psalm 118, which is quite likely the psalm that Jesus and His disciples had just been singing together when they left the upper room. That's why we sing almost every Sunday that very psalm at the end of our services in the season of one. They were just singing Psalm 118. Psalm 118 says the sacrifice must be bound with cords to the altar. That's what priests do. They bind sacrifices to the altar. So when the priests bind Jesus and take Him to Pilate, when they bind Jesus, they're really just doing their job as priests. That's what priests do. They bind sacrifices. Steve 15.1 goes on to say, they handed Jesus over to Pilate. That is also loaded language. Historically, we know they handed Jesus over to Pilate because the Jews did not have authority to carry out capital punishment themselves. So if Jesus was going to be executed, the Romans would have to be involved in it. But theologically, there's a whole lot more going on. There's another layer of meaning to this. Again, the historical event is described with language that shows us something else is happening. Because this language of being handed over is language that is used in, in Scripture elsewhere for exile and for judgment. See, when Israel falls into idolatry, Israel is cursed with exile. And the prophets say that when that curse is carried out, the nation will be handed over to the Gentiles for punishment. 
Jesus, who is Israel in Himself, who is a one-man Israel, a one-man summation of the nation of Israel, is being handed over to a Gentile ruler and a Gentile nation. He's being handed over to this Gentile ruler, Pilate, and He's being handed over to a Gentile nation, Rome. Obviously, in order to bear the curse of exile. He is taking Israel's curse upon Himself. The curse of exile. He's being handed over to the Gentiles for judgment just as Israel had been. Further, when Jesus stands before Pilate, He is silent. You could even call this scene the silence of the Lamb. Right? Because that's what Jesus is. Again, it recalls the suffering servant song in Isaiah 53 where Isaiah the prophet says, like the sheep before its shears is silent. This is how the suffering servant will be. Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed and afflicted, but he opened not his mouth. That's Jesus. The sheep silent before his shears. The one who is oppressed and afflicted, but who opens not his mouth. See, all of this is happening as Jesus is on trial. Without the trial, without this historical event, these historical details, we'd never fully understand why Jesus died or why He had to die in the way that He did or how His death brought about our salvation. This is what the Gospel is all about. You see it here in the trial. See, sin is when we put ourselves in the place of God. That's maybe the simplest way to think of sin. What sin is. Sin is when we put ourselves in the place of God thinking we know best, we know right from wrong, we can make judgments and determinations on our own, we can do what we want. Psalm 115 says the Lord is in the heavens. He does as He pleases. Well, sin is when man on earth does as he pleases. That's sin. We put ourselves in the place of God. Salvation from sin comes when God puts Himself in man's place. When God puts Himself in our place. Sin, man substitutes himself for God. Salvation, God substitutes Himself for man. When Jesus does this, it is the ultimate act of love. There is no greater love than this. The the, the great love seen when a man lays his life down for the sake of others. Or we can even say, when God lays His life down for His sinful creatures who have rebelled against Him. Jesus Christ, God's Son in human form, died for sinners. The Gospel is not about second chances. The Gospel is about a second Adam. If all God did is give you a second chance, you'd blow right through that just as fast as you blew through your first chance and you'd be right back where you started in deep trouble. Now, the Gospel is not about second chances. The Gospel is about a second Adam. Jesus inaugurates a new humanity with a new standing and a new status because of what He has done. Because He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He is a second Adam who is qualified to be our substitute. And He's done it. And this is good news. But there's still more here. And I want to spend a few minutes on this as well because the Gospel is incomplete if all we do is talk about substitution. There's more. And there's more going on here. It's not just substitution. It's also enthronement. 
In fact, substitution and enthronement go together. And not only do you see in this trial scene that it's all about Jesus' substitution, it's also all about His kingship. When Jesus came into the city earlier in the week, on Palm Sunday, He was heralded heralded by the people as a king. He entered the city as a royal figure, as a king. He's tried before Pilate as a would-be king. He's going to be crowned as king with a crown of thorns. He's going to have a placard above his head that declares him to be the king of the Jews. In chapter 15, he is called king six times. Obviously, this is the theme. This is what the chapter is about. In Mark 14, before the Jews, before the Jewish court, Jesus is accused of blasphemy. He's accused of blasphemy because He claims to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But He also claims that He'll be seated, that is, enthroned at the right hand of power, coming on a a chariot, a kind of royal throne, a chariot cloud in the heavens. He makes kingly claims. Now, the thing is, the charge in Mark 14 was the charge of blasphemy. The Romans would have taken no interest in a Jewish debate over blasphemy because that was a religious charge. And so what the Jewish leaders do is they translate those charges into political terms that will get Pilate's attention. Pilate might not be interested in adjudicating a case about blasphemy between different Jewish factions. But he would certainly take note and take an interest in someone claiming to be the king of the Jews. Because that's actually a title Pilate wanted for himself. And that's actually a title that only Caesar could give. And so to make that claim on your own, to make that claim on your own say-so, would be to make yourself equal to Caesar or even greater than Caesar. It certainly would be to make yourself a rival to Caesar. And so when Pilate is told that there is a man who's claiming to be king of the Jews, yeah, you can bet Pilate is going to take the case. The rebel must be dealt with. But then Pilate examines Jesus. He inspects Jesus. And he can find no fault with the man. He says of Jesus, he has done no wrong. He's no revolutionary. It's interesting how Pilate's questions are very parallel to those of the high priest in the previous chapter. And Jesus' responses mirror those He makes before the Sanhedrin. In 15.2, Pilate asks, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, literally He says, you say. That's an ambiguous answer. What, What does Jesus mean when He says, you say? Well, it could mean, you said it. And that's actually how most English translations render it. As in Jesus affirming it, saying, yes, I am a king. It is as you say. But actually, it's more ambiguous than that. It could have the sense of you say, as in you get to decide. You get to have say so. You get to decide, Pilate, if I become king. It's up to you. Meaning, Pilate, if you deliver me over to the soldiers to be mocked and crucified, then yes, I will be king. Pilate, you get to be my king maker. If you hand me over to be crucified, you will have enthroned me. Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you said it. You decide. Now, Pilate doesn't get it. I mean, after all, how could a crucifixion be a coronation? 
Pilate never would have suspected that. But that is what's going on. And again, we see it if we look at the details. See, to become king, Jesus must die. Because that's what kings do in God's economy. That's what the king does. That's the calling of the king to lay down his life for his people. To serve his servants. In Scripture, you see this again and again. You enter into kingly office and into kingly glory by serving and sacrificing. Jesus has already taught that in Mark's Gospel. But of course, that's not what the Romans believed about kingship. And it's not the kind of king the Jews were looking for. And so what Jesus is doing here is redefining kingship. See, in their view, the view of the Romans and of the Jews, kings are winners. Kings are people who win. Who win so much, you know what? You get sick of the winning, right? Jesus clearly is not going to be that kind of king. In fact, this is why Pilate can't recognize Jesus as the rival to Caesar that he is. It's why he's ready to let Jesus go. He sees Jesus as harmless because he can't recognize this alternative kind of kingship. But then what happens? Pilate's on the verge of letting Jesus go. And the crowds, stoked by the priests, demand Jesus' death. He says, what do you want me to do with him? And they shout out, crucify him. And so what does Pilate do? He does the typical politician thing, appeasing the masses, giving the people what they want. Verse 15, you see this. He's reluctant about it, but he wants to satisfy the crowd. He wants to satisfy the crowd's bloodlust. And so just as Jesus was handed over to him, so he hands Jesus over as well. He hands Jesus over to be crucified. And then the Roman soldiers, this is Pilate has played his part, the Roman soldiers play their part as well. What do they do? They begin to mock Jesus. But ironically, their mockery actually reveals the truth. This is the height of irony. They go through this grotesque mockery, a kind of skit, a, a kind of play-act coronation. They think it's all a joke. As they go through this kind of coronation liturgy for Jesus, they don't realize He's actually being made King. They make Him a crown with thorns. And they salute Him. And they even cry out, Hail, King of the Jews! They put a purple robe on Him, which of course is a royal garment. Purple being a royal color. And even when they execute him, 1526, we didn't read it this morning, but they put a sign above his head proclaiming his kingship above his head as he hangs on the cross. There's the sign that says, this is the king of the Jews. For them it's mockery. For them it's all just about making fun of Jesus. But their mockery reveals the truth. Their mockery is the truth. As they mock, it's actually happening. They think they're play-acting a coronation liturgy. But it's actually it actually is a coronation liturgy. It's actually happening. Jesus is actually becoming king. Now the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6, God is not mocked. But here God is mocked. Why does God allow Himself to be mocked here? Because the mockery reveals the truth. It reveals what is actually happening. God will have the last laugh. 
Just as the Jewish priests unwittingly prepared Jesus as a sacrifice, inspecting Him and binding Him. Just as the Jewish priests unwittingly prepared Jesus for sacrifice, so the Roman soldiers have unwittingly coronated Him as King. Just as to the Jews it was self-evident Jesus couldn't be the Christ, so to them it was self-evident Jesus could not be a King. But in reality, they are making Him King. They are inaugurating Him as King, crowning Him as King. When they lift Him up on the cross, they will be exalting Him into His kingdom, inaugurating His kingdom. They can't see it. They can't see it because they worship power. But this is what is actually happening. Jesus is acting. Jesus is acting as a King precisely in His willingness to suffer. His willingness to lay aside His glory. His willingness to die. His willingness to lay aside His glory and lay down His life for His people. Jesus will win, but He'll win through weakness. He's going to conquer, but it will be through suffering. He's going to lead, but it's going to be through love, through sacrificial love. See, rightly understood, Jesus here is not a helpless victim being bullied about by the Jews and the Romans. No, His death is actually a great act of power. And in this great act of power, as Jesus goes to the cross, He changes the world forever. See, worldly kings send their servants out to die for them. But not so with Jesus. He is the King who becomes a servant and who reveals His rule by dying. And by dying, He wins the victory. When Jesus is tried and crucified, the kingdom comes. And the trial shows us this. It shows us this is what is happening. Isn't it interesting that none of the other participants in this historical event, none of the other participants in the trial and in the crucifixion really understand what they're doing. Jesus is the only one who knows what's happening. And again, this means Jesus is not some helpless victim. It means He's actually the one in charge. He's the one calling the shots. He alone knows what is going on. They don't know they're crowning a king, the king of all the world, the king of the cosmos. They don't know the salvation of the world is taking place. So interesting, at the beginning I mentioned Tacitus as one of those secular historians. He was a a Roman historian, uh, who mentions Jesus. It's one of those references to Jesus outside of the Bible. He's got a reference to Jesus in his histories. Uh, Tacitus is a first century historian, but it's very interesting. He reflects back on the reign of Tiberius. Okay, Tiberius was the Roman emperor up through 37 AD. So he was the Roman emperor when Jesus was crucified. He was the Roman emperor to whom Pontius Pilate reported Probably the Roman emperor that Pilate was most concerned about when he said, well, I probably just thought I'd go ahead and crucify this guy if he's claiming to be king of the Jews and the Jews really want me to do this because I've got to keep peace in this region or Tiberius will come and demote me. Which actually eventually did happen. So Tacitus is this Roman historian. He's looking back on the reign of the emperor Tiberius and this is what he says. Very simple. He sums it up this way. Under Tiberius, nothing much happened. Nothing happened 
actually the greatest thing that ever could or would happen in the history of our universe happened under Tiberius's regime. And indeed, Tiberius's governor in Judea, Pilate, played a key part in it. Think about Pontius Pilate, this mid-level Roman bureaucrat. And yet he gets his name mentioned by millions upon millions of people every Sunday. Pilate played a key part in the greatest event that has ever happened. Because see, after the trial and death and resurrection of Jesus, nothing is the same. Everything has changed. Forgiveness of sins has been secured. The kingdom has come. The victory has been won. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for winning the great victory through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through His trial and His death. He not only substituted Himself for us, taking the punishment we deserve because of our sin, but He's also been enthroned as King. And so now He restores us to our rightful vocation as priests and kings serving You in the world. May we do so faithfully. This is our prayer in Christ's name and through His power. Amen.